Welcome back to the What's Up and What's Next podcast, the greatest podcast of all times. And today, I have a special guest in the building. Well, actually, in the screen, but same thing, really. He is a very good friend of mine, someone who I consider to be probably seven-year friendship, right? By my maths, if I'm not doing the maths wrong, it's about seven years that I've known this person. And... He is an incredible human being. He's also a jack of all trades. He's a man of many talents. He's always up to something very, very interesting. So it'd be good to talk about all the things that he does. But he's also very passionate about the tech scene. And I think today's episode will be an interesting one because we will be touching on a very popular topic, which is often the data, the privacy, the things that people don't really talk too much in the tech scene and I think it'll bring a lot of value to it. But without further ado, please welcome my very good friend to the show, Zayn Mehta. Welcome, Zayn. Hey, Eric. Thanks so much for the introduction, man. I feel like uh, I feel like really setting the bar high for this one. I like it. I like it. That's how we do. That's how we roll. How are you feeling? <laughs> I'm good, man. Uh, tired, you know, still recovering, but doing all right. Um, for those who don't know, I actually just hiked a mountain yesterday, so my legs are killing me. I thought I was in a lot better shape. Um, I thought wrong, but it's fine. We're here. We're going. Um, but yeah. Good good to hear, man. You're always active. You're always up to something, like I said. It's, <laughs> good, it's good to know. Now, for those listening that may not know much about you, could you tell us a bit more about yourself? Uh, yeah. So my name is Zane. I'm 22 years old. I studied cybersecurity. Notice the past tense because hopefully graduation soon. That's it. Degree done. Um, but yeah, I've been I've been into the tech scene for I want to say since I was probably eight nine years old. Um, it's been a lot of fun. But yeah, that's a quick intro about me, man. Now that's that's all we need. We'll we'll get more into into you just in a bit. Now. Today's episode is an episode that I haven't touched on yet, so it's a fresh topic in terms of something that I haven't really covered before. It's also something that tends to have some ups and downs, so there, there'll be times where people are talking about it very heavily, and then there'll be times where it kind of just goes undercover and underlooked. And it's it's data. It's essentially data, privacy, and all things around it. Now, before we get into the deep ends of what's going on or what's not going on, really, Fair, fair question to ask and taking a step back would be why is data so important in the first place? Data. Oh, data is data is really important. Um, data really is, I'm, go, I'm going to pull a complete dictionary definition, but it's the facts and statistics collected together for reference or analysis. Right. So that's if we're getting information on two separate things to see whether there's correlation between the two. Right. And then the results we get from that would would be what we would consider to be the data on it. Our, our results section is our kind of data that we've worked on and data we found out. It's so important because a lot of the times we don't realize the value of some of the data that we give away for free, right? Do you ever see Facebook profiles, for example, that have crazy tons of data? Like, you know, you see where they go every day, what this person does every day, phone numbers, email addresses, and retrospectively, we look at it and we think, oh, well, it's just the phone number on the internet, or it's just our email address. What's the worst that can happen if someone emails us? Hey, it's not a big deal. But when we look at it from the flip side, now talking from the whole cybersecurity perspective, if I'm trying to get 
information on a person, the whole reconnaissance phase, what I would want to do is find every bit of information I can about a target. In this case, if it's a person, I'm going to look at that Facebook page. I'm going to try and find out when it was made, you know, what country it was made, what's the name on the account, has the name ever been changed, email addresses, because that has value to me when I'm trying to, in a way, attack someone. But if you're kind of putting your data online there, you might not actually think about all the kind of value that this data has towards kind of you. So data, it's really difficult to put kind of an idea of how important data is, but try and put yourself in someone else's shoes to figure out what would this person do if they had this data? What could happen if this data got out to the world? And from there, you can kind of deduct what's the value of this data. And I think there's many aspects to it as well, right? So if we go a bit extreme, I think that right now you could potentially or countries could potentially have wars quote to quote wars just by having data just by having access to the right data or by acquiring access to the right data because data is so valuable that countries would be in vulnerable positions because other countries have access to data that they shouldn't and you you sort of get the the big movie i'm trying to make 100 percent yeah, yeah, no, 100%. I, I totally agree with you. I think when we look at kind of the mediums by which we have kind of, I want to say, wars, so to speak, um, I think data should be up there because the more you know about something, the more you can kind of control it or manipulate it, so to speak, into doing what you want it to do. And I, it's scary to think how much power data has when it's used for these things, right? It could influence elections, wink, wink. Um, you never know about these things. You don't know where it could go and you don't know how they can be manipulated to influence such things. That's where the worry is. It's kind of the idea of the fear of the unknown aspect as well. And it's also, so this was obviously an extreme example, but mm-hmm, if, you, mm-hmm. if you sort of pull back, because data is leverage at the end of the day. And, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. in this extreme example, it's a leverage to a country from another, but if you pull back and you just think about, have you ever, <laughs> this is a funny one, have you ever tried to Google your name, like your full name, your first and last name? Have you ever tried to do that before? <laughs> just to see um, what comes up. <laughs> yes, I uh, I would highly recommend people to Google themselves, see what's out there about you in the world, because you never actually know some random website could have your phone number i i've seen it many times before when i'm like trying to help someone get some info off the internet and i'm like they didn't even know they had half of this stuff out there in the first place and they're scared of it as well so it's really really interesting um googling yourself is definitely a good way to start i would highly recommend it um i would also highly recommend taking off as much as you can find about yourself from Google or all other search engines, because you do not want to be found by these things. You do not want to be indexed by Google's web callers. It is scary. Yeah, and it's interesting. So I've obviously tried it. And of course, you know, your usual social media profiles come up. And But for example, my podcasting website came up as well, which I, thought, I found really interesting. And... <laughs> It's just interesting because you didn't get to see, like, okay, if I put myself in the position of someone else, of a stranger, what would a random person get off searching uh-huh. just my name and just look at the results? 
And it's, it's interesting mm-hmm. because then that becomes their data index, right? And that's just yeah. a, a quick overlook as well. That's not even going too deep into researching. No, no, no. I agree completely. But um, also, I think we need to also consider the fact that the way Google works, for example, is that if 50 people in London, or let's let's just take an, an area, right? If the 50 people in an area are all Googling the exact same thing, in the outskirts of said area, if people were to start kind of looking around the same region, searching for similar things, they're all going to see similar results because they've all influenced each other's kind of Google index pages, right? The more a person clicks on a link, the more Google actually thinks that this link is valid. Therefore, the more it's going to show the link to more people. And that's how you can get kind of malicious websites getting to the top of search hits because in your area or based off of various factors that I don't believe Google makes public, um, these links can actually become the first ones to be seen as soon as you search it. So if I search Eric Gerard in Google for London, I might find Eric Gerard's in the UK. But if I search it in the US, for example, I'll find Eric Gerard's in the US, no, even no, though I've no, Googled the there's, exact there's same only, keywords. There is only one Eric Gerard. I just want to make that clear. So no, you won't. You can try. There's only one Eric Gerard? 100% okay. in the world. Uh, okay. Guarantee. <laughs> okay. There's, okay, there's one authentic Eric Gerard. Shall we go with that then? There's the best and the one and only. But sorry, I, 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 I fully interrupted you there. Carry on. Uh, finish up no, 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 it's okay. I, I was done with my point. I was just saying that people can actually influence how search engines give results. And that's something we need to be aware of as well. Because if I want to get a malicious link to the top of the search page, I just need to create a botnet that is going to search this exact keyword hundreds of thousands of times. And eventually, Google will put it higher and higher on people's searches. It's, again, very various aspects to it. But if we pull back now a bit and you just talk about the businessy side of things, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What what I think is fascinating is the fact that a few years ago, or decades even, we the struggle was in getting a hold of data, and I think that mm-hmm. was the biggest struggle back then. It was like, how do you get data? How do you collect data? How do you, as a business, understand what your cost, what your customer wants what your customer needs right and this is sort of like in a very from a coming from a very good place right like how can i as a business deliver the best value to my customer of course and in order to do that you need to understand your customer but in order to understand your customer you need data that tells you more about them and back in the days it used to be a struggle to understand to do that because you can't understand the customer because you don't have enough ways of collecting data and so you can't get a hold of the right data fast forward to now I don't think that's an issue anymore. I don't think the issue oh, is no. gathering data. The issue is instead, what do you do with that data? Because it's mm-hmm. all well, good and said getting data, but what do you do now that you have data about your customers' behaviors mm-hmm. or your customers' like likes and preferences, mm-hmm. for example, right? What do you do with that? And I how think, do you interpret it? Exactly. How do you interpret that data yeah. and then make data-driven decisions that will optimize for your business, for example? And I think mm-hmm. that's the issue that I, I I sort of see roaming around a bit more is because people get data, but then they, they either, one, don't know what to do with it, or two, they don't interpret it in the right way and therefore make wrong decisions. Mm-hmm. And I think a very good example of something that I believe 
is, is very well done in in for example from clothing brands or anything that sells things online is when you buy something or, or when you when you add something to your cart to your basket right so say for example I'm, I'm looking for a hoodie online and i add it to the basket as soon as i add it to the basket there's straight away a window saying here's other items that other people have searched for or that other people have bought together with this and then it comes up with like a tracksuit bottom, for example, and you know tracksuit bottoms do go well with hoodies, for example, right? And so, and and, that, and that's a very clever way of utilizing the data that you had from analyzing other customers' behaviors, and then saying, oh, we've had you know a thousand other customers that have enjoyed buying these trousers or these bottoms, these joggers with this hoodie. I think you might might like, and then they recommend it to you, and that's I think that's a uh-huh. brilliant use of. Because it, it might be that that person then goes and buys it when they weren't yeah. planning to do it at all. And so I think of course. from that perspective, there's also like a lot of utility in the business side. Oh, 100%. Like data, I think data as a whole is neither good nor bad. It's just how it's utilized. I mean, t- taking this example of the one that you just said that oh, others have other people who added this to their basket also added this other stuff like the tracksuit bottoms i've actually seen websites that have completely faked this right they had it's not that they weren't basing this off hundreds of thousands of other customers have said this they literally written in their html script seven other people are looking at this right now to try and make you want to buy it. So it's kind of using the whole psychological ability to make you think, oh crap, so many people are interested in this, I should be interested too as well. And that was literally written in plain text HTML. There was no scripting, there was nothing for that to be based off of. I even tried it myself by looking at it on multiple tabs through multiple networks and so on. And it, it wouldn't influence it at all. So. It's about how we kind of utilize the data that we're getting from here. Are we just going to fake it till we make it? Or are we going to give people kind of the authentic stuff behind it as well, right? That's the thing I think we need to make key. Because when I look at eBay, for example, I see 10 people are watching this right now. But do you ever, do, is it ever highlighted that zero people are watching something right now? I don't personally see it. I could be wrong. Hey, I could be. Some websites, some websites do do this. Some websites don't. People, these companies like to show that, oh my God, look at all these people looking at it, but they never show when people aren't, which I guess it, it, it kind of makes sense from a business perspective. Why would we want to kind of say, oh, no one's looking at this because if no one's looking at it, why the hell would I be interested in it, right? But it, it's very interesting and I think it could go on for, for a very long time. I feel like data is going to be around for a oh, God knows how long. And I think at this point, data is becoming, rather than information, I feel like it's becoming more of a currency. It's the new oil. But yeah, I, 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 I've read articles on this as well. I mean, I think you and I have had a conversation prior as well saying how data is becoming kind of more worth it in comparison to things like oil, fossil fuels and stuff like that, which is crazy. Because if you look at kind of the technological world that we're going into or that future generations will be going into, if we don't kind of create a kind of bridge between how far is too far, kind of invasion of privacy, things like that, or how much data should these companies be allowed to take from you, then I think it's going to be a very blurred future for the rest of the generation if we don't set that now. 
Yeah, because it's evolved to such a, an extent. And I think, again, we, we're sort of just back and forth into random use cases and random scenarios, but it's just to show how versatile data is and how oh, versatile yeah. it can be used. And we haven't even really touched the, the depths of it. But mm-hmm. I think today's episode is going to draw more onto one side or one aspect of, of data, which is how it's used by companies in particularly how it's used by the gigantic social media networks, platforms, mm-hmm. companies, whatever you want to call them, really. And yeah. probably something that a lot of people may have heard of because it created quite the buzz when it came out is the Social Dilemma documentary. Ah. That was, well, first of all, a very interesting documentary, very well done at least in my opinion it seemed like a very well produced documentary i <laughs> i found it interesting how much buzz they create and I'm, i don't want to call it buzz but how much talk they they managed to then influence after releasing it mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i don't know what your thoughts are on it um, i'm not sure if you've watched the documentary or not but if if you, if you have or if you've heard of it what what are your thoughts on it the, the social dilemma is undoubtedly one of the greatest things I, I have ever personally watched. Um, for a long time, I've tried to bring to light, even within my kind of household or my friend circle and so on, I've always tried to bring to light the value in having a private life, so to speak. Um, because when we look at these kind of social applications, okay, Eric, let me ask a question. Do you have Instagram? Yeah. Do you have Twitter? Yep. Do you have Facebook? Yep. Do you have WhatsApp? Yep. How much money do you pay for all of those in a month? Zero. Why do you think that is? Because the business model is built on ads. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That that's that's a that's a big chunk of it, dude. Like a lot of these things are free, but. They're, they're free in the sense we're not paying through monetarily. We're not paying for these things using actual money. We're paying with them by using data, right? Let's let's take ads, just ads alone, for example. Uh, let's think of a platform. Let's take Instagram, hands on Instagram, right? I'll set the scene. Scrolling through Instagram, you see an ad for, let's say, in my case, I see a lot of ads for shoes. I'm a big sneakerhead. I love them. But I see loads and loads of ads for them. If you click on one of them, you're probably going to see maybe a few more ads tailored around the exact same product. But now think about the information that you could get from this one ad. So if I'm an advertiser, um, what I would do is, how long were you looking at this ad, right? Because then you can gauge interest. Did I add this particular product to my cart? If yes, what stops me from becoming a conversion that, well, stops me from actually purchasing it, right? What can we then do to make you a purchaser? Well, then we'll use what's known as a retargeting campaign, which is where people who have previously shown interest in a specific area are then retargeted through either emails or phone. So then I might get an email a day later saying, hey, look, you looked at this. Would you be interested in this stuff too? Or was there a reason you didn't buy it? And that's all ad-driven because these ads have the metrics of how long I looked at that ad. Where did I click on that ad? Did I try to zoom in on the picture? Where did I zoom in on the picture? What was I trying to look for? 
because once they figure out kind of the customer needs aspect, then they're in a stronger position, or at least the advertisers in a stronger position to create a conversion from that. And that is what Instagram, WhatsApp, Twitter, Facebook, that's where the money comes from. But, and okay, so yeah, so that makes sense. But what I want to ask you, and I guess playing a bit of devil's advocate here, mm-hmm. is why does that matter? Okay, if you're a sneakerhead, mm-hmm. if you're a sneakerhead, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you get sneakerheads, mm-hmm. okay, mm-hmm. you clearly clicked on the ad, so you, which means you're interested in it, mm-hmm. and now you know, or, or at least you've learned from experiences that you're going to get more sneaker ads because you clicked on the ad mm-hmm. that might help you find the sneaker that you wanted to buy or that you'd be interested in buying and isn't that mm-hmm. a plus yeah ads aren't all bad they really aren't all bad and you should care but i think for a lot of people it's like you know what what are they going to do with this information right like how is it going to directly affect me and to be honest most of the time there, you know, there is no direct influence that they have upon you it's just hey you know here's something here's a product you might like you never know but then it's about when that gets i want to say abused purely because that because now we know that by using certain targeted kind of ad campaigns and so that we can actually get conversions from this i can start selling you whatever the hell i want and if the ads are good enough you will be a conversion and what's interesting is that Facebook or um, not, not directly Facebook, but our phones actually know more about us than we ourselves know about us. Our phones know where we were yesterday at 2.13 p.m. They know where we are every second of every minute of every hour of every day because they never leave, us, leave our sides. Now, what would you do if these devices, all the information that they hold about where you've been and things like that, if that information got out or say a company was hacked, that data was stolen, and a threat actor was saying, hey, look, we have all this data, either pay us or we released it to the world, right? That data directly, you don't really have to care. But when that is kind of analyzed and you can kind of dig deep into being able to target a specific person through that data, that's when I think we have to have some concern here. From a cybersecurity perspective, especially, our primary goal is to get as much information as we can about the target, whether it be a company, a system, a service, a person, right? You want to target a person, you need to learn about them, get all that data. If someone could create just imaginary scenario, if someone could create an entire clone of your iPhone without your passcode, no, this is practically impossible to do, just for reference. But if someone were to be able to do that, what information would they have on you? I know that if for my iPhone users out there, if you go to settings, general, and no, but I believe it settings, privacy, uh, location services, system services, and if you look at significant locations, you will actually be able to find out where you've been for God knows how long that you've kept it on, how many times you've been there, uh, what, how, how long you spent there, how you got there, and all that information is just sitting there. And for my iPhone users, that setting is turned on by default. <laughs> by default. You didn't even have a choice. 
if you had turned location services on when you bought your iPhone, this setting is on right at this very second. So if you're watching this, take a second, go to settings, privacy, location services, scroll down to significant locations, and lo and behold, you will be scared at the information that your device has on you. Why should you care? Hey, it depends on the person. You know, being really anal about these things, it, it, it's down to personal preference. But I sure as hell don't want my phone knowing where I've been every minute of every day because that's scary. Because that information can then be used to, hey, target me, for example. If someone found out my significant locations, they know where I live. They, know, they would know where my other half lives. They would know where the rest of my family is. They would know where I've been or where I like to spend my time. They could then build a profile about me. And trust me when I say, it is scary, but it's also not that difficult, which makes it even scarier. And so, the, the ultimate, ultimately, the, the issue here is, well, one, the amount of data that exists about us that our phones hold, for example. And when I say yeah. our phones, you know, we're talking about the apps that we use, the social medias and stuff that we use and utilize and consume and more concerningly is the utilities that that data could potentially have mm-hmm. that you wouldn't want and mm-hmm. i think here's where there's a fine line because for example when the social dilemma documentary came out and it's highlighting again i'm not sure if that's how things are being run at the moment in these big social media corporations I'm sure some things have changed. I'm sure there's more regulation around it. I'm sure there's a lot that has changed from back in the days because what this documentary uh, did for a lot of the people that haven't watched it yet, and if you haven't, please do because it's actually really interesting. What what it did is it brought people who used to work at Facebook or who used to work at Twitter and who used to have really senior positions in those companies mm-hmm. who uh, talked about how they felt that there was a lot of unethical things being done around the whole data privacy and stuff like that right now big time yeah big time now are things still the same from back when these guys were at those companies no idea (laughs) that's that's the funny thing no idea because you know unless you 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 work there and unless you really hire up you don't really know the ins and outs but what it did is it brought light to a topic that a lot of people had almost kind of socially embraced and then a lot of talk went around it, and then everyone just went back to normal, right? Yeah. So, so <laughs> <laughs> literally, exactly. I, I remember I, I showed the uh, the documentary to a couple of my friends, and they were like, they were asking me so many questions for about a good three, four days about how to stay more private online. And then after that, I think they all just went back to their normal habits because it was easier than staying safe or keeping themselves safe online it's 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 incredible because it's like people care but people don't care that that much i think that's what it really comes down to like if you ask me do i care about my data yes do i care about it enough to take all the measures necessary i don't know (laughs) i've never sat down with myself too properly i am careful with what i do anyways and and Mm -hmm. how i consume and stuff like that Mm -hmm. but it's 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 one of those things where people care about it but they don't care about it enough to make much of a change around it because like you said it's easier not to i guess yeah i i also think it's really tough right 
to think about if we look at kind of our generation, we're, we're the generation that was born into technology, right? We were, we were the generation that was born with smartphones, you know, laptops, iPads, Apple Watches, all of these things that were there to kind of make things easier. But because we were born into it, I don't think we see kind of from an out from an outward looking kind of perspective. We don't really see what that does to us, right? We don't see the effects it has. And for us to kind of see directly these effects, it's not going to happen. It's really not going to happen. Yeah, I think it's also, for example, the documentary highlighted how supposedly, and I'm going to say supposedly because, again, I don't know what it is or not, so I just want to be very careful mm-hmm. how I'm wording this, mm-hmm. but supposedly how companies like Facebook or, or Twitter or Instagram, how they keep you looped into yep. the platform. So I'm pretty sure all of us are guilty of spending a lot of time on our phones and more specifically a lot of time on Instagram and social media platforms in general. And it's be- almost become a form of addiction that is socially accepted. Right. Yes. That's kind of what it is. Yeah. What happens here is supposedly these apps are doing the most to keep us engaged and keep us on the app. Right. Uh And how do they do that? I don't know. Push push notifications are a good example of that. Um, amongst other things, I don't know if you want to expand on that. Maybe. Um. Well, look. First and foremost, before I go any further, I want to say that everything I'm saying here is unsubstantiated, you know, there is no kind of evidence to suggest that this is actually what is happening. We do not know this, right? At the moment, all we can do is really speculate. But the social dilemma, one of the key things they brought up is that, have you ever gone on your phone? Have you ever, you know, posted a photo on Instagram, just randomly, and then a week later, you get a notification saying that someone liked it, right? And that someone you look at is, oh crap, that's like someone, I don't know, someone, let's say it was like a crush liked your picture or whatever, right? What is that's going to do to you is make you want to look at your phone to see, holy crap, they do it. Then when you look at your phone, you see nothing there. I've got Instagram notifications so many times that they come up. It's, it's an actual name of like one of my friends has engaged with something. I click on it and there's nothing there. And I think, holy crap, why has that happened? And then the social dilemma it highlights that that is done to get you to use the application because the longer you're on it, the longer these companies can show you ads, therefore, the more revenue they make. If the entire world boycotted Instagram for a week, you best believe, I don't think Instagram would be very happy about that. But at, at this point, I also don't think that would even happen, right? I think we're so far gone from such a possibility that social media is so ingrained into our daily lives that I don't think the world could stop using it. Right, in some shape or form, I don't think there's a way that we would stop. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think there's a lot of benefits to it. Social media has allowed for interconnectivity between countries, generations, huge. Like social media has been great, right? But there are still some things that we have to look at, right? It's not perfect, you know? I think there was a metric about social media directly correlates to kind of um, the decline of mental health in. I forget the age band, but there was a correlation made and there was a research paper done that actually showed that social media causes more mental health issues than it helps, right? So there's so much more we can take out from this. Like, I I don't want to get too far away from the point, right? 
But I think that we need to be very, very cautious and very aware about what we're putting online, right? Because once it's up there, once it's there, that is not coming down. That information cannot be taken out of the cloud. No matter what you do, it will still exist somewhere, somehow, no matter what you want to do about it. And that's a fact that we have to be okay with if you want to be able to use these platforms. Yeah. 100% because even if you try to delete it, it never really comes off. It's, it's No, it doesn't. Uh, also, Instagram, for example, if you look at the terms and services, when you post a photo to Instagram, that photo then no longer belongs to you. Instagram owns the right to that picture, which has been quite difficult for creators. I know some creatives who have actually avoided posting pictures on Instagram of their work because then they don't own the rights to it. Which for a creator, that that's really tough. Like, dude, that that's what they do, or they can't showcase it because then they lose the rights to it. So it's really interesting. Whatever you post on Instagram does not then belong to you. It belongs to Instagram, which in this case belongs to Facebook, since Facebook now own Instagram too. Yeah, and WhatsApp as well, don't they? And to the point that you made earlier about how. It's it's so it is psychological effects, right? It's almost like you're uh-huh. psychologically manipulating someone in a uh-huh. way, influencing someone in a way. And again, yeah. with the word supposedly, because it's you don't really know the ins and outs. We don't know. But the documentary made a lot of strong claims, and oh yeah, I don't know if you saw this, but basically Facebook had a response to it because obviously it generated so much noise that Facebook was like, okay, what's going on? So then Facebook generated these like, it's almost like a one or two pager, basically to res- responding to every, I don't know if you've seen this or not yet, but I have seen this, it was yeah. basically like responding to every claim that the documentary made and basically just contradicting everything that was claimed by the documentary. Again, it's... <sighs> It's a fine line because, look, I, I'm pretty sure. And, and by the way, Facebook, I think if we think about earlier, you mentioned affecting the elections. This was something that was known and that Facebook did sort of, they owned up to that uh, in, in when it happened. Like, not this one. The, the, the whole one, the, Cambridge Analytica scandal. Uh, I think it was the 2016 election. I may be wrong or something like that. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. Facebook owned up to that. And they've made serious changes to make sure that it wouldn't happen again. And uh, things have been more regulated. I, I'm not going to sit here and, and, and say that they haven't because I'm, I'm sure there's been a lot, a lot of evolution. And I mean, these guys are continuously in court. Like how many times yeah. have you seen Mark Zuckerberg just show up in court to answer? Yeah. It's just every time. I feel bad for the guy. The amount of time but then, the guy spends. But then the thing is, I think what we also need to realize that one of the reasons Mark Zuckerberg has constantly been in court is that kind of, I want to say, data or as much as kind of GDPR, these things are out there, there is no kind of legislation or overarching thing that can constantly catch up to kind of the data or the tech or the emerging kind of technologies out there because they're moving so, so quickly. As much as we want to kind of find a way to manage this or govern it, or find a way to or create kind of that line between where is it okay and where is it not okay, it's really, really difficult because it's growing at such a rapid rate that to keep up with it in itself is a huge challenge, right? It, the thing is, I don't think there'll ever be a catch-up. I think, no. I think that won't necessarily happen. I think what will happen is 
they'll it'll come to a point where there will be some drastic changes around how things are being done and I don't know I don't know what the answer is to be honest but mm-hmm. until then we kind of just have to trust because at the end of the day these are great companies we're talking about with the utmost respect as well to, to, to the companies mm-hmm. and people oh, yeah. that work at them For sure. because they've done amazing things and whether the claims of the documentary were correct or not I don't know but if they were correct, if they are, if they happen to be true, then it's obviously messed up. If they don't, then it kind of just proves that you know it, it's the companies are doing a good job. I'm sure things mm-hmm. are evolving and, and being more regulated internally at Facebook and Twitter and other companies as such. Mm-hmm. So, oh yeah, m- moving a bit away from that, or actually not moving away, but moving in correlation to that, a lot again. There was a lot of buzz around the topic when WhatsApp announced some sort of change to their terms and conditions <laughs> or whatever it was and then all, yeah. all of a sudden everyone's like Telegram, let's go, oh Telegram and then there's like a WhatsApp. Yeah. Like what happened? Do you want to mm-hmm. talk about that just briefly? Yeah, I, I don't want to go into too much detail because it is a very complicated and complex topic especially depending on the countries you're in but what people need to know is that Facebook owns WhatsApp for a start, right? The next thing is that WhatsApp is end-to-end encrypted. This means that no matter which side you're on, you can't actually see this data without an encryption key, right? And this encryption key, what's happening is that this encryption key is, it should belong to you and it does belong to you, but a backup of the encryption key belongs to the proprietor. In this case, it would be WhatsApp or Facebook, which means if they wanted to, now I'm not saying they do, categorically, I'm not saying that this happens, but I'm saying if someone wanted to, they have the ability to, right? Because they have access to these encryption keys. This doesn't mean they will, it doesn't mean they ever would, but it means they could, which is even scarier, because I personally don't think Facebook or WhatsApp would ever go down the lane of kind of having access to user data, but what I'm more concerned about is because coming from the cybersecurity perspective, if, if, big if, they get hacked, someone gets a hold of all those encryption keys, do you know how many customers would be screwed because of them just having those encryption keys, right? If a threat hacker was to go out there and somehow, bear in mind, this is very, very difficult. I'm not saying it's impossible. It is very, very difficult but it is not impossible. If they were to get hold of our encryption keys, oh, that, that basically renders the whole idea of encryption moot, right? Because someone has the data, they have the encryption, they, they literally, that is it, you, you have been hacked, basically. And that's more my concern rather than these multinationals having this data. Oh, yeah, 100%, because, uh, like, first of all, it is a crime, right? It's a crime to, to do anything with personal data so that's a big line that i don't think the fine is so huge that i don't think corporations would dare to try and cross it so i'm not mm-hmm. so i agree with you i don't think the problem i don't think the issue lies within even though the documentary made claims that it did and maybe maybe it does maybe it doesn't i don't know yeah but externally if if but I'm, I'm sure there's also a lot of security measures around it so it's not that, oh yeah i'll just just to tell you so google just, just Google, their data centers have six layers of security, right? Starting from the actual ground owned by it, then to the inner, inner perimeter, all of that, right? The deepest layer of security at a Google data center, funnily enough, is actually 
the I want to say the, the garbage chute, the garbage chute, the, the bin room, right? Because when they're getting rid of drives that have died, that it's not that that data is being thrown away. That data will get copied somewhere else, but information from can still be taken off from our drive. So the actual process of disposing of these safely, in the sense that they can't be then accessed, is huge. And that is actually the deepest level of security at a Google data center. Which is mud. That's insane. Layer six security, I believe. Not 100% sure, but I'm fairly confident that, yeah, six layers of security. It's, it's, it's pretty incredible. So I'm not worried about them. I'm worried about someone breaking into them. Because from a hacker perspective, it's not about, oh, a company hasn't been hacked yet, which means they won't be. That's the thing. It hasn't happened yet. It will happen, just hasn't happened yet. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, if you were to think of that worst case scenario, like someone now has access, someone that attacked the company has now access to your WhatsApp conversations. I, I know a lot of men are shaking. <laughs> I know a lot of people are shaking. It's, 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 it's worrying. It's, it's really, really concerning. Uh, I know that there used to be some kind of issues with Apple as well, being that they had access to these encryption keys of their users too. Um, I mean, if any of you have heard about kind of Apple unlocking devices for the FBI and things like that, these are really, really difficult cases, and it can't and it can't just be that. So, okay, the FBI wanted Apple to create a backdoor into the iOS system so that they could use it for events of things like, oh, when there's a terrorist attack, for example, they want to have backdoor access to that device. But then it comes into question about, hold on, that was still a person's device. Do you have the right to access that data? Right? And Apple categorically said that they will not create as such of a backdoor. Whether or not that's actually happened, we don't know. But from what we do know, they said that would never happen. And I, I agree with them. But the fact that they have the ability to is what's more concerning, in my opinion, at least. Yeah, it's the ability to. I think, again, going back to the WhatsApp Telegram thing, Telegram became... I think Telegram popped a bit more off because... 100%. Because of, of the, the whole thing going on with WhatsApp. I, I still think, mm-hmm. again, people cared about how much these people cared to move over to Telegram, how many stayed... Like, let's be honest, like us two were sitting here... We both still use WhatsApp. Yeah. Right? And whether what, what that is because we eternally trust the the platform or no. we're lazy, it doesn't matter, but we, we, we're still here. It's so, it's so difficult to move away from WhatsApp. And I think a lot of kind of listeners right now will actually resonate with that because it is not easy to move away from a platform that your family uses or your family around the world uses or your friends around the world uses. Because if you move to Telegram, for example, and get rid of WhatsApp, how do you stay in communication with these people if they don't have the same kind of medium to do that with? Right? And that's where you're kind of stuck in an ecosystem. Think about how many people get an iPhone or an Apple device for iMessage or FaceTime because there is no Android or Windows equivalent that is as good. Right? It's so heavily ingrained within the ecosystem that moving away from it is is harder than actually staying in it. Right? Yeah. I, I have Apple devices. I I love them, but you know what? 
they can get so annoying sometimes. And my annoyances are for another time. But I find it so difficult to move away because of how tightly interconnected these things are to each other and the people we associate with. Yeah, I think for me personally, WhatsApp is I probably is the most, if we consider WhatsApp a social media platform, I guess, if it falls mm-hmm. into that yeah, category, yeah. then I would say WhatsApp is the number one social media platform I use, if we're considering it. Oh, yeah. Like, I use WhatsApp more than anything. Like, it, it's, yeah, it's, like you said. Oh, yeah, man. My 100%. We, we all have those family group chats with those, like, family from around the world. That's the only way we stay in touch. Friends, family, I get it, man. Everything's there. All 100%. of it. Now, diverting into a bit of fun, informal stuff, it's the worst questions segment. Oh, God. Which is a, don't say about It's a bunch of random rapid fire questions just to get to know you a little bit better. I, uh, again, just to highlight that there's no correlation to the episode, there's no correlation to the storyline, this is just <laughs> a bit of, like, fun, just fun. to get to know you. That's it. And it'll okay. be quick as well, it won't be too long, it'll be a brief one. So... Alright, see what you got. You ready? Ready as I'll ever be. Right, so, if you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? Steak. Ooh. Okay, you didn't hesitate there, and it was quick. No. Right. Big steak fan. Um, How do you like a steak? Medium. Okay. Medium, medium, medium rare, but if you eat a steak well done, don't talk to me. Okay. So, it, that simple. Okay, shall we end the episode here then? Cause, <laughs> <laughs> no, cause, Eric, it was going so well for you. No, you know what? God. It depends on the mood. Come on. It depends on the okay, mood. Okay, fine. It depends on the depends day. Depends on, on the mood. mood. Anyways. Medium rap. <laughs> right, fair enough. So, next one would be, what is your favourite hobby or favourite thing to do when you have some downtime, some free time? <laughs> I'm going to sound like an absolute nerd, but I love building things. I love breaking them, building them, see how they work, put them back together. I've I've lost count of the amount of kind of either computers I've built, all broken, or phones I've built, all broken. But that's the thing. You break it, you learn it, you fix it. This is how I started. Um, that's my me time. Headphones in, build a computer. One of my favorite things to do. And you're pretty good at it. So for, for those who don't know, like Zach uh, is really good at it. He knows his stuff when it comes to building stuff. So hit him up if you need if you need anything. <laughs> Drop him a message. Oh, man. Uh, I just enjoy it. And that's the thing. You enjoy what you do. And that's all you should care about. And to be honest, I enjoy this stuff. Right now, I'm looking at my PC that I have torn to pieces because the maintenance, I had to clean it up. It takes ages, but I love it. Fair enough. That's all it is for me. Yeah, it's a passion. Right, so what would you say if lock, well, lockdown is easing up now, right? So yeah. what is something that you'd say you definitely miss? Oh, what have I missed? To be honest, I think it's been like, it's it's been a very long time since I've you know gone out and actually seen some friends and just had a meal together. The, it's it's been so long that I'd argue I've kind of forgotten what it feels like to go out, socialize, sit with the guys, do something. It's been a long time. In a way, I think it's a good thing, but at the same time, you know, like I, I need to go link up with the boys. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's been long enough. Yeah, hundred percent. I feel you. I hear you. 
Mm-hmm. What is your favorite TV show of all times? Or if you don't have a TV show? Mr. Robot. Time? Oh, okay. Nice. What about movie? Movie? That's a tough choice. Interstellar. Right. Cool. So it wasn't that tough. I like a lot of sci-fi I just had to think about which sci-fi I was kind of thinking is my top choice but um, yeah there you go okay crypto wise what is your favourite coin <sighs> what is my favourite coin this is a good question um, I don't have one I think they all offer so many either benefits or reasons to them that it's very hard to pick on a favourite um Bitcoin, I don't, when I look at Bitcoin, I don't see it as a coin, I see it as a statement because it was the first of its kind as a cryptocurrency. Everyone looks to Bitcoin as this is the gold standard. If Bitcoin drops, we don't trust cryptocurrency. But if Bitcoin hits a million, <laughs> we want all of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So Bitcoin, like you can see that it, it actually influences other cryptocurrencies, whether it's good or bad, but there is still a direct influence from Bitcoin itself. So I can't pick a favorite. It's difficult. It's really, really difficult. Okay, okay, fair enough. Last question. What's your favorite dessert? Why do you do this to me? Just, just why do you do this to me, Eric? You know I can't eat most desserts. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, do you have a favorite something? A favorite snack, maybe? Okay. Maybe. Favorite <laughs> snack? Anyway, thanks for the desserts. Uh, listeners, I'm allergic to eggs, so I can't actually eat waffles, pancakes, crepes, cake. I've never had cake before. Um, it, it is a heartbreaking time but yes unfortunately desserts and they don't go well together every so often I like a nice little ice lolly not ice cream because I was allergic to ice cream when I was young so I never got the taste for it so now I just enjoy uh, what's it called uh, what's it called you know the the traffic light fruit pastels those are great yeah sorry I, I completely forgot about it and when I asked I was like oh yeah as soon as I, as soon as I asked I was like oops Right. Anyways, yeah. coffee or tea? Neither. Nice one. Okay. Well, so... Again, again, you know exactly why I said neither. Because for all my listeners out there, I have never had coffee or tea before in my life. Yes, you heard that right. A British boy who grew up in Africa, two of the best, well, grew up in Kenya, two of the best places for tea, and I've never had it before. Do you want to clarify F- why? F in chat. Um, I mean, hey, when I was in London, I was too young, so I didn't really get into it back then. And then I, I used to live in Mombasa, Kenya. My grandparents never really let me have it, so I never developed a taste for it. Um, which is great, because I like the fact that I can wake up in the morning and not need a tea or coffee to get me out of bed, like I know some people do. Hey, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> you okay there? Are you- uh, listen, you, I, I see you with your like, <laughs> I see you with your little espresso cup with a pinky up as well. I see you. Yeah, um, I don't, I don't rely on it to be honest. I just, I just have it as in when I feel like it. I, I enjoy a good hot drink, but not like it's not like I can't go without it for like weeks, months. Yeah, I've done that before and just mm-hmm. doesn't really. Uh, I'm, I'm good. But yeah, I do, I do enjoy my green tea. I'm on a green tea vibe. I'm sure people who have been listening to the last few episodes would have heard me say this multiple times green tea yeah that's the vibe i'm on but yeah that was fun thank you got to know you a little bit better and for those who don't know you got to know you more than i already know so that's always a plus 
back to the to the episode and, and the topics around it. Let's talk about the dark web. <laughs> God, here we go. Ugh. Don't need to spend too much time on it, but it is it is a known it is a known fact that every time dark web is mentioned, people always be like, "Oh my God!" and 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 maybe with with good reason, but I don't think a lot of people actually know about what yeah. it is, and people just know that the word dark is in there so it must be something dark which is a good assumption mm. to be making to be honest yeah but what is i it? mean what what we should first clarify is the difference between the deep web the dark web and the clear net okay yeah. so the clear net is everything you find on google it's everything that can be indexed through using like web callers right so if you search for a website all of that is clear net and you, you don't actually see much else. Um, and it's actually a single digit percentage of websites on the clear net. I'm not sure of the exact percent, but it is in the single digits, right? So under 10% of the actual internet out there is the clear net. The next bit is the deep web. The deep web is actually things that can't be indexed, devices that can't be indexed. Not necessarily bad stuff like you would necessarily find on the dark web, but this is like your IoT devices, your Alexa, your Google Home, your HomePod. These are deep web devices because they are not directly accessible through the internet, right? It's like a, they just communicate to the servers, you and back. No one else can interfere, and that's the whole deep web. The deep web is huge, right? Think about it, how many people have multiple smart home devices in their home, right? That all accumulates and eventually it, well, not eventually, but it is huge. And that is, that is the deep web. It's not directly accessible, but it exists, right? The dark web, on the other hand, people see this number that like, oh, yeah, something like 90 something percent of the internet is the dark web. That's not true. Right. The dark web itself is actually websites on what's known as Tor, which is the onion router, because of how many layers there are to the kind of encryption aspects and everything. Fun fact, Tor was made by the US Navy. Yes, a completely, well, not completely, but an anonymous browser was created by the US Navy, which is incredible because you think about how it's being used some nowadays with the whole dark web aspect you think holy crap the us navy made this it's crazy but the the, the dark web is the whole bad actors or where you would find whatever you want to purchase or things like that that's where you would find it on the dark web the dark web can only be accessed through tor it is a lot of the time monitored by government agencies it is very difficult to track someone on the dark web, but it's not impossible. And that's why I think people need to realize. A lot of people say it's complete anonymity. It's not. It's really, really not. So I think we have to hone in that if you guys ever look at the deep web or the dark web using this, be careful. Follow certain steps. Never make the browser full screen because that can be used to do what's known as fingerprinting to find out the resolution of your device which is well the size of your screen, how many pixels in your screen, which can lead back to the laptop you use. And then from there, you could find out the Wi-Fi hardware and then track that back to the exact place where it was sold, which can eventually be tracked back 
to you, the user. Even if you're not doing anything bad on it, just try to avoid it because sometimes it's a lot more trouble than it's worth. Yeah, I mean, if you just stay away from it, <laughs> like what's the point, anyways? See, I, I love, I love the creative thinking that went into creating a service like Tor. Right, because when you, it, it basically works very similarly to the internet. The internet works by sending a packet from node to node, right? In this case, the packet, when it gets to the next node, only then does it decrypt the next layer to see where it goes next, making it really, really, really difficult to find out where it's actually come from, because each node only has enough to send it to the next one and not know where it came from. But it's worrying because. There has to be an exit, right, where you actually communicate to the website, the exit node, as it's commonly referred to as. Now, the exit node, if that is controlled by, well, whoever controls the exit node can see the traffic that's going through it. So I'm not saying this exists. I'm not saying we know this for a fact. But government agencies, if they wanted to keep an eye on what's going on, they just have to make loads of exit nodes. Because once they see that traffic, they'll be able to know where it's from and work their way backwards. And that goes into the whole idea of kind of decentralized networking and then having loads and loads of nodes. But you have to ask the question, at what point is it safe to use? And at what point is it just unsafe to use? Because, hey, we have loads of government organizations all tracking you. Why the heck are you going to use it? Yeah, that's a very valid point. But to sort of wrap that up that's i guess an overview of what the dark web is and then mm. thank you for explaining as well, as well the difference between the deep web and the dark web i think that's very valid mm-hmm. to to bring up and to highlight yeah. let's talk about hacking now when we talk about hacking it always almost comes with a negative connotation and yeah and i'm not going to sit here and and say that it doesn't make sense as to why the regular person would make that assumption but there's obviously more to hacking than just a negative connotation. There's also very positive connotations. Mm-hmm. Again, if you think about hacking as a tool, uh, it all comes down to how you use the tool. So therefore, if you use it for good, it's good. If you use it for bad, it's bad. I think that's how I like to see it. And of course, I've had my fair share of playing around when I was young. Me and my brother obviously had a bit of fun. But it's, again... But you didn't do anything illegal, correct? No. Or you did all the stuff on your own devices that you owned and had the rights to, correct? Yes, every, everything that you said, all of the above, tick, tick, tick. Now, Good, because that's what you want. Well, yeah. What I want you to, to sort of talk about is, one, what is a less defined hacking? Let's just be, be clear about what hacking is. And then, are there different types of hackers? And what, what are those and let's define them. Let's, let's give a good overview on this topic of hacking. Yeah, for sure. Um, hacking, uh, in my personal definition, is gaining unauthorized access to information, data, or systems. That, that is my overarching kind of definition of hacking. There are different types of hackers. You have, you have purple or purple slash gray and then white or black. Right. Starting with white white hat hackers are the good guys. They're also known as ethical hackers. 
they hack the hackers to stop bad stuff from happening. Another type of white hats are security researchers. If your security researchers will look for bugs in programs and then report them to the company that created the device or whatever it is in return for compensation. This is why we have the idea of bug bounties. Apple actually offers a $1 million reward if you can get a, I believe it's a full kernel exploit with persistence on latest running hardware, which means that in this day and age, if you can jailbreak the iPhone 12, 12 Pro, 12 Pro Max, uh, 12 Pro, 12 Mini, if you can jailbreak them with an untethered jailbreak and you submit that to Apple, they will pay you a million pounds. All dollars. It's mad. And that's, that's how, bug bounty. That's how serious they take security. That's how serious security is taken these days. Like, that's how much it's... Oh, yeah, big time. Uh, I think as much as security is taken seriously, it's not taken seriously enough. But that's a point for later. Um, another one of hackers is the black cats. The, these are the malicious actors or threat actors. These are the guys who... They're the bad guys, you know. They're the ones who want to hack, get all the information, ransomware, steal data. That's what they do. Those are black hats. Purple slash gray are in the middle. They do, well, I want to say they do the same things as both hats without the malicious intent behind it, right? So, for example, if someone were to say, hack Google, not do anything about it, not do anything malicious, it would be considered a white hat. Google obviously would consider them a black hat and a threat actor. But if they don't do anything bad or illegal, then it's it, it's a grey area, hence the grey hat. I think that's a that's an interesting discussion. But technically, if you're gaining an authorized access, technically that that is illegal by itself. Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's 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 that's almost like a flex. Or let me just hack this company because I can and do nothing about it because I actually don't want to do anything bad. I just want to prove that I can. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, like you said, it's a grey area. I think the grey colour is very perfect, gray area. perfect for, for the naming of it. Now, that, that that sort of explains it and I think white hats, or which are the hackers that hack for good or to, to improve or to highlight any flaws, mm-hmm. I think they push... The and I'm sure a lot of those white hats were once upon a time black hats, or at least grey hats, right? And I think unless you disagree, again, if you do disagree, feel free to to jump in. But I think that there is a lot of value in things like bug bounties or or just like anyone that tries and breaks into something and then reports it to the company and says, look. Here's what I could do. Here's the flaws I found. Maybe yeah. if you do this and that, you could prevent that. Like I think that's mm-hmm. it's, it's pushing the security levels to the stage that they one they should they should have already been in that stage realistically. But yeah. it's helping improve, and I think mm-hmm. that is worth. Security is expensive. Cybersecurity. I think one of the main reasons people are so kind of shy away from it is because it's really, really, really expensive. You're a software dev. You know what it's like when you're building this really great product, but then the security team shuts it down because they're like, well, no, hey, too, too many red flags over here. We've got to fix this first. But what a lot of companies don't, well, I don't want to say they don't realize, but if they don't tackle security first, it will come back to bite 
them in their behind later. Big right, and that's a really big thing. And what's drilled in my head at university constantly is that companies don't have the money to do all these security things until after they get hacked. Because suddenly <laughs> the money is available, right? They, they, they never have the cash until something happens. Whereas had they done it at first, they could have avoided it in the first place. I think that's all. That's that's what we call a reactive approach, right? And 100%. I, I don't think that's just you know we're talking about this, but a bit off topic. I don't think that's just like you know necessarily applied to companies being hacked. I think that's applied to anything in life. Like how many of us unfortunately take our health more seriously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But only mm-hmm. after something really bad happened. It's, 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 it's very true. It's very unfortunate, and it's it's almost like it's we we spend a lot of our lives. And I I made an episode on it on this actually. It's called reactive, yeah, yeah. Proactive, proactive versus reactive. It was one of the first. Reactive. One of the first. I remember this. Ones. It, it was it was, mm-hmm. it was a great episode. Obviously biased, but hey, go um, check it out, guys, in the description. Yeah, hundred percent. This is is just the constant thing that people tend to have a reactive approach to everything in life and. That is not, again, always the best approach. The, the idea that a company, again, back to the topic, only acts on their security measures once they've been hacked just goes to prove that, one, how much they've already lost for them to want to, and now they having to rebuild whatever it is. And it's just a big mess. Just take your security, in, in this topic, take your security very seriously. And mm-hmm. just in life, generally, take everything like, what, too hard. what I really want to mention is that in cybersecurity, we have what's known as the CIA triad, right? So the CIA triad are the three key components when you look at kind of a risk assessment uh, towards a company. CIA is confidentiality, integrity, and availability, right? So confidentiality is the people who are supposed to see this information, are they the only ones who can see it? That's the first one. Integrity. Once this information is there, it should not be changed, nor should it, anyone be able to change. Availability, if a website goes down, there goes your availability. So when kind of companies are creating risk assessments, there's always the idea of the CIA triad saying that if this were to happen, which one of these are we going to kind of not be able to comply with? Companies then decide kind of based on those, those risk assessments what they should and shouldn't do. So the CIA triad is really, really, really important. And I, I will hope, you know, going forward into the kind of emerging technological careers out there, especially with me and cybersecurity, I really hope companies kind of take heed of this more because it's scary. It's not about we haven't been hacked yet, so it won't happen. It's a company will be hacked. Curiosity killed the cat. Again, another thing that has been drilled into my since university. The reason there are these types of hackers is because we start off being really curious last thing i was curious about how to build a computer so i broke one and built one i was curious about how phones work so i broke one and i built one i was curious how systems work so i broke into a system and figured it out all of which i owned on all my own personal devices obviously yeah, yeah. but that's the thing uh, yeah it it's see the, the field is evolving and i think looking at it now versus looking at it back then I think there's been major improvements, just like every other aspect of technology, which is great exponential growth is what we want, and I'm sure you'll you'll it's a good it's a good area to, it's a good field to be in. So I think you you're in good hands effectively. Now 
we've talked about a lot uh, today in regards to data privacy, how companies manage it or not, the security implications of it and, and all things around it. I think it would be good to also dive into other interests of yours before we wrap the episode up, such as videography, editing. I mean, I know, I mean, I know firsthand, obviously, uh, (laughs) that you are, um, one, good at it, and two, passionate about that, if if I can use that word on it. And I just wanted to know, like, how did you first get into it? How did I first get into video editing? It's a good question. Um, It is a real passion. I think a lot of videographers will say that they got into videography because they're out here to tell a story, right? Writers go out there writing books, videographers go out there making stories through videos. And I absolutely love it because you can find ways to pull emotion from people using these video skills. And I love it because there's so much you can document using videos that I don't think we've actually understood yet. And I'm constantly spending more time learning about cool stuff to do. Um, I got into it uh, a long time ago. I had done in the Smiley Youth Camp and had been asked to, you know, be, be part of a video for it. And I remember at the end of it, I was like, hey, you know, if you guys ever need someone to edit, knowing that I had never edited videos before in my life, I was like, yeah, send it over to me. I'll see what I can do. Um, lo and behold, that then worked out pretty well, you know, thankfully, touch wood. Um, and then I made some connections from there that were able to help me further the kind of development down there. And then after that, I had the incredible opportunities of doing videography and photography at other is my youth camps from when I started with zero complete learning curve, but I've enjoyed it so much that the night before I actually went to one of these camps, I, I literally spent the entire night watching YouTube videos and practicing on how to build these things. It's, it's crazy what you can do with these things the more you learn. So, yeah, it's, it's a big interest. Really, really big interest. I, I, I can tell. And, and I think that was part of the reason why I, I wanted you involved in a very recent project of mine, which is obviously this episode will have come out already. Um, it's already out anyway. So <laughs> it's the Jim Shark 66 documentary. And I think it would be good to just talk about the backstory of how that came about and how you got involved ultimately into it. And so basically what happened was in December of 2020, I was going through like a phase of my life where because of lockdown and because of just lack of general motivation, I wasn't really too into my gym. And bear in mind, I was working out, but then lockdown came and it just ruined my whole routine of working out and then I was eating like crap and you know ultimately I kind of just disregarded my my fitness goals and 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 really I was it came to December 2020 and I was like damn like I literally not done anything that would impact me positively towards my fitness goals and it just feels like something that I need to change and then I saw the Gymshark was doing this Gymshark 66 challenge first time I've ever seen it it's first time I've ever heard about it and it, it's basically like, you know, for 66 days, you commit to, do, to doing something because in 66 days, you'll create a habit. And not just that, it'll also change your life, whatever. Right. I'm looking at this thinking, OK, bet. Let, let, let's, let's give this a try. And so I thought about doing it. But then I also thought, OK, but what if I go step further? And what if I document the whole journey 
from it because I think that might actually turn out to be something very meaningful and inspiring to other people because I am going to a phase of my life that is like, okay, well, I'm not in the place that I want to be. How can I change that? And so when I thought about that, I was like, okay, great. But that means that I have to film, record and edit. Now, I'm not a big of a fan uh, of videography. I'm also not a big of a fan of editing. And I've got so many other projects on the side that quite honestly, I don't think I even have the time to do all of that if I wanted to. So I, I thought to myself, who, who would I go to to help me out? And the first person that came to my mind, there was two people in my mind really, but the first person that came to my mind was Zane. And I know Zane's good at it. So I was like, oh, Zane, what do you think? And I sort of told Zane the idea and he was like, yeah, I mean, sounds good. And so we did it. We I recorded, I filmed every single day for 66 days. Oh. By the way, very authentic, very natural. Nothing was scripted. Nothing was nothing of that sort. This was like a genuine documentary of like day to day what was going on. And then was just sending no it. Moving, no moving magic was used on that documentary. It, it was literally each clip was day by day by day. It was yeah, crazy. You were getting them on a daily basis and mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. you were editing it on a daily basis as well as it was coming up to it. And it, it turned out pretty great. I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. But I think uh, out of the things that it, it turned out to be very stressful, and I know we both acknowledge that it was very stressful because trying to get it out, and for those who, who follow me and, you know, are more in touch with what I do, it was meant to come out on the, on the 7th of March, but it came out, like, I think on the 10th of March. Again, because it was just so much to do. And it was very stressful, but it was also very, very rewarding as of experience and i think i couldn't have chosen anyone better to follow me along on that journey i think i'm grateful that you were you were there and you made that like a banging uh, documentary from an editing standpoint and i i appreciate you but i think my question is like how did you find uh, that experiences of editing a whole documentary easily one of the toughest things i've done um and it, it's not just the oh, it's tough to edit something so long. I think we had a lot of hurdles along the way. Firstly, we had to figure out, you know, how is Eric going to be able to shoot some of the footage without Amy being there? Or B, if someone is there, is it going to fit into the film? What are we going to do? Do they have the equipment? I actually remember I sent Eric up a little uh, care package with a tripod, some makeshift lights that I had physically built myself uh soft boxes all of that just so that we could get kind of the right seat it was tough man like that thing was tough but i think for the both of us it was as much as it was tough i want to say it was eye-opening into kind of the process and it taught me to also love the process as well because yeah it's gonna be tough cool but enjoy it because if you don't enjoy how tough it is what are you doing and it, it made for something very impactful as well. I think mm-hmm. the turnout, the result was insane. And I've had the amount of feedback I had positively from that, the reaction. I did, I did not even expect people to care. To be honest, I'll be, this is me being real with you. I didn't think people would care. I didn't expect people to care either. But there was just a lot of big turnout and a lot <clears throat> of good positive feedback from it. 
and it, it kind of just was of a, a bit of a testament to the good work that we both done and also my brother so it's, it was a three-man job because realistically i could have not done the documentary without my brother on the filming side of things and you on the editing side of things like legit the, the if it wasn't for you two the documentary would have not happened it would have not been out because i wouldn't been able to feasibly done it so it, it was a huge team effort without a doubt uh your brother daniel gerard you my friend were amazing um, without your without your <laughs> kind of shooting skills we wouldn't be here without eric actually doing this we also wouldn't be here like there's a lot to as much as i may have made this documentary i didn't make this documentary we made this documentary you know what i mean like yeah. it came from all of us and that's why i think it's really 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 important because as much as yeah eric did the 66 days all three of us basically did the 66 days i was doing something new i was out of my comfort zone daniel did something new daniel was out of his comfort zone eric did eric was out of the comfort zone and that's what's important yeah and i'm glad like as much as you say you weren't expecting kind of the reactions, I ain't doing it for the reactions. I'm doing it because, well, yo, we're here to learn kind of thing. Yeah, 100%. that's what it is. And, and that's why I said I didn't expect it because I wasn't, Ooh. I was doing it for myself. And I think I, I stressed so much when it came out. I was like, these are the two people. I literally, so many times I was like, these are the two people that it could have not done with because, you know, I'm always grateful for and the people around me and I think it's a big 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 win for us in terms of what we, we produced at the end of it now we both know that there's a lot more coming in the pipeline in the future there's a lot more exciting projects bigger projects as well which is you think these would have been uh, the biggest but there's actually a lot uh, bigger things coming and hopefully that will also involve you I'm pretty sure some if not most of it will involve you how, Inshallah. how <laughs> How are you feeling for that? <laughs> excited, nervous, scared? <laughs> hey man, all the above. I'm excited and I'm nervous. <laughs> if it means getting out of my comfort zone again, then hey, let's do it. Um, all I can say is I'm looking forward to see what we do together. Because as you say, we've known each other for what, seven years? We've spoken to each other at a minimum every single month. Yeah. So, hey man, I'm, I'm looking forward to see what we can build together. Yeah, a lot of magic coming through. Now, to kind of close the episode so it's not towards the end of it, I want to wrap up the earlier topic around data privacy, security, and I want to wrap it up by asking you one, one final question, which would be, what are your tips for people who want to be more mindful of their online privacy? Oh, tough one. Um, firstly, I would say if you have a public account on Instagram or whatever your kind of social media is, having a public account is usually a, your first mistake. Try and have it as locked down as you can, right? In my case, hey, look, I have a public Instagram account. Cool, I'm fine with that. But I'm also very aware about the information I'm putting out there. And that's something you guys should be too. Be very cautious about that picture you're posting or that location you're tagging there or the person you're tagging in that picture. Be careful because all of this stuff can be put together and a lot of information can be found. So I'd say be very, very wary or just double think. What could happen if I put this information on the internet, right? What could happen if I tag a picture of the university in my acceptance letter? Oh, wow, now people know where I go to university. Is it a bad thing? Hey, in your idea, maybe not. But for someone who, say, wants to stalk you, that's a great way for them to find out where you are. 
Yeah. So be very mindful about what you're putting out there. Because when it's out there, it's not coming back. Yeah, there's no undo button. There is no undo. Yeah, 100%. Do you have any, anything else you want to leave people with? Uh, if you have an iPhone, please go to settings, privacy, location services, and scroll down to significant locations. Have a little gander. Let us know what you think. Uh, message Eric. Tell him what you found in there. Or don't. But the last thing you need to do, make sure you turn it off. Because your phone doesn't need to know these things. If you're an Android user, there is an equivalent that is doing the exact same thing. I'm sorry, I'm not an Android user. I don't know it off-head. But please look into this stuff. Stop it from tracking you. And also, a final thought. Something really, really interesting that I don't think many people know. If you use Netflix or if you use any kind of webs on the internet, you probably have seen it say, when you first go to it, saying, accept cookies, accept all cookies. And it's really, really important that you don't do this. Right. It will always say either check your choices and or allow all cookies. Now, what I don't think a lot of people realize is that a lot of the times we just press accept to just get it off the page because, you know, we're trying to, we're trying to engage in the content that's on the page or whatever it is. But if you actually press customize my choices, you will see that 99.9% .9 of the time, all the choices are turned off because the website is legally bound to have them turned off by default. But because the options it gives you when the banner first comes up says, accept all or customize, unintentionally, we are, we are actually accepting all the cookies, right? And I know this is a fact for both Disney Plus and Netflix, because those are some of the things that I use regularly. If you actually go in and say, I whatever the customized choice or look at my choices, you will see that the rest of them are turned off. But because you press allow all, they are then turned on. So if you literally, it's one extra step. And guys, I know, an extra step to consume your content, it sounds long. But trust me when I say it is worth it to just press customize and press save. Because by default, most of those will be off. And if you want to try this out, do it. Go to Disney Plus, try it out. Let me know what you think. But it's something you really should remember. Because that one extra step between pressing allow all cookies and customize it's huge for what a company can get on you. And it's huge. Can't stress it enough. But yeah. I'll leave you guys that with my, uh, my penny for your thoughts. No, sounds good. And very much appreciated. Very solid advice. And I guess just sort of on my end to wrap it up is a lot of what we spoke about today, again, is things that may be happening, may not be happening. You know, it's just all speculation or not right but the point the point being is regardless of it being speculation or not the matter of the fact is you need to be more mindful and more aware of the data that i think that's the biggest key 100 yeah is because i don't think people are aware enough and mindful enough so as long as you are even and if you're not at least from now hopefully from after listening to this episode you will yeah, i hope you do yeah then that's that's a win in itself and that's that. Now, final segments of the podcast. It's called Who's Next? This is a one question. It's basically me just asking you who do you think would be suitable to come on here next. It could be anyone. It could be friends, anyone that you follow. It just doesn't matter who it is as long as it's like between one to three people max that you can give a shout out to. And yeah, Zane, just tell me who's next. 
do you think if I say Elon Musk, he will actually come on the podcast? You never know, man. You know what? I might have to approach him and say, look, Zane said that you'd you'd be perfect for this. I don't know. You can, yeah, about a hundred percent. I actually think who is it that would be great to have on podcast? Have you had Fahim on the podcast yet? For him, such Shadina, yeah, yeah, he was one of the first ones that I had on the podcast. Okay, okay, this is why I had in my head. Okay, um, I think you need to get Zaki on our podcast. Yeah. So Zaki, you 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 have been nominated, my friend, also my cousin. <laughs> you are now nominated to come next on this podcast, mate. You bring the whole crew. Um, let's see what happens because I I know he he would be pretty good, hundred percent. Yeah. 100% Zaki, you heard it here first, so you have to come on now. Um, big shout out to Zach. Do you have anyone else you want to shout out, or shall we leave it at that? Are you looking for any entrepreneurials? I'm looking for anyone. This is the What's Up and What's Next podcast, the greatest podcast of all times. Give any shout outs you want. Uh, I'm going to nominate my sister. Yeah, okay. Um, those of you looking out there in this world, looking to start business, entrepreneurship, I, I genuinely think having a conversation with my sister is something that will do you well. Uh, my sister's my role model. Look up to her. 100%. She, I think she would be an amazing addition to have on the WhatsApp and What's Next podcast. So, Ziana, you've been nominated. Right. Awesome. Big shout out to her. And that's that. So, thank you so much. And now, the tradition... You can't escape the tradition. No one can. The final question, Zay, for you would be, what's up and what's next? I mean, hey, I'm I'm extremely fortunate to actually be able to say that I'm graduating soon. Um, it's It's been a tough road. I, yeah, the whole education stuff is tough, but, you know, we're getting there. Persevere, push yourself. The next part for me is, hey, career, man. I, I'm, I'm looking to take a, not a break, but I'm just more so looking at kind of options um, to see where I should go next. What, what's the next thing I want to do, the next challenge? Uh, who knows? I may be moving away for a few years. Uh, can't obviously confirm anything yet, but who knows where the world's going to take us. But I know that I have a lot of big plans. So hopefully one day I look forward to, to sharing it with the world. Yeah, and we'll have you back on again then for, for another good talk. Hey, man, I hope so. Yeah. I'm sure I'll have some good stuff to tell you then. <laughs> yeah, like, just like you did today. Now, honestly, I, I, I'm, I'm happy for you. You know, obviously, I want to say congratulations, but I just want to wait until the moment happens because I know, like, it was a big chapter of your life that you just basically finished and that you're closing off. So, obviously, proud of you as a good friend and almost like a brother that I see you as well done. And I'm really excited to to what's next. I think the the what's next is the the most exciting part out of all of it because there is there is a bright future. There is a lot that is ahead of you. And man, you know I'm behind you as a good friend. Always support you. So yeah, let's let's see let's see where where things go. But I'm I'm excited to to see what what you get up to next. Like I said, Zane's always up to something interesting. Never, <laughs> never fails to to, to disappoint. Oh man. So yeah. you know what I'm like. It's it's always hush hush until it's done. Yeah. Until it's ready. And that's that's the way that it should be. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, it's been, it's a, been long, a pleasure. It's been a long time coming, for sure. And uh, we'll have you back again, for sure, at some point. And I think it, it'll be exciting. 
Thanks so much. Amazing. And if you guys have enjoyed today's episode, then please make sure to listen to the next podcast to find out what's up and what's next. <laughs>